Well, hello. Welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and Matt Tracy. Uh, we're so excited that you've uh, decided to tune in and listen. There's been a lot that has happened since uh, since our last recording. And so, um, Matt, I'll let you tell us about it. Uh, there will come a day when my co-host, we won't, uh, we will no longer call him Professor Matt Tracy, but we will, a couple years from now, be able to call him Dr. Matt Tracy. <laughs> Matt, what has happened over the last couple of months? Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. So the last time we, we recorded was, um, well, the last time we posted an episode was in when we were in Florida. And like the week prior, I had just found out that uh, I had gotten into a PhD program at Trinity University in Illinois. And so that was in what, March, early March. Mm -hmm. uh, so between then and now, we have listed our house, sold it, and bought a new one and moved. <laughs> so in the course of about, you know, a month and a half, two months, uh, we have moved to a different state. And so it's been a crazy couple of weeks, but I think we're, we're slowly but surely getting settled in. Um, finding a preschool for my daughter, which was fun, fun little process. My wife's working from home now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fun. Been a, the, one of the more chaotic times in my entire life, uh, but it's been good. And we have a baby on the way in a month, so it's going to get even more chaotic <laughs> too. So, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what's uh, a little bit of what's been going on. Yeah. So congratulations though on getting accepted. Um, doing this while having a baby on the way, congratulations also for being on, well, for the baby, but then another congratulations for being in a special category of, uh, perhaps crazy or glutton for punishment, but, uh, prayers yeah. will be with you. They <laughs> say like the most, the most stressful times in life is where, when you change jobs, have a baby, get married and move. And I think I've got three out of the four of those. Yeah, you guys just tack on them all at one time. Yeah. Well, I've had various seasons of crazy in our life too, but uh, good crazy. I'm not going. Yeah, good. I'm not going to add going to school back to school yet to that. Maybe, maybe one day I'll see if you survive. I'll let you go first, Thanks. and if you survive, maybe I'll think about it. Well, we're. I'm really excited to uh, have a. Uh, a guest, a friend, um, someone I met through uh, the Elkhart County Jail Ministry, uh, but someone who I respect a lot. Uh, we have uh, Greg Fry uh, with us today. Greg, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Greg, you are, well, you're an assistant chaplain. That's how we met. Um, but you also are an addictions coach. And uh, we would love to explore just having a conversation about that and what you can help uh, us learn and and all that, but there's also other just layers of your story. You are um, you are a little further ahead in the journey than Matt and I, and so you have more experience in uh, just your story. So, before we get into some of the the specific questions, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your story, and how sure. did you come to call yourself a follower of Jesus, a pastor, and then an addictions coach, like? How did all this stuff come about? Tell us your story in a nutshell. Well, I just really appreciate the opportunity to share. So um, I had a, a pretty fun childhood for the most part growing up in Southern California. 
my mom was a follower of, of Christ. My father was not uh, until some things took place in our lives that kind of helped him make a decision to become uh, a follower of Jesus as well. Um, his conversion was um, pretty dramatic and uh, really changed the trajectory of our, our, our lives and family in a, in a dramatic way. And um, at that time, I was, I think I was uh, 12 or 13. I also made a decision to follow Jesus. Uh, and then um, we moved to Oklahoma. My father was laid off from big aircraft company, Lockheed. And so we moved to Oklahoma and went back to his hometown. And it was quite a culture shock, a small town in Oklahoma. And so it was at that time I um, started getting preoccupied, I guess, with other things, job. Um, I started college classes, um, making friends and um, there in that place and getting used to that culture. I got interested in girls and started dating. And so um, I married very young. I was 20 um, when, I, when I married and, and had uh, two children rel relatively quickly. Um, <clears throat> when I lived in California, I had joined the Air National Guard uh, right out of high school. And it was just a little bit after um, the Vietnam conflict ha had ended. And so I had friends that were already in the garden. So I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. When I, when I went to Oklahoma, um, the base that I was assigned to in Tulsa was just a, a really terrible experience for me. I was activated into the Air Force. And so I did a stint in the Air Force for two years. While in the Air Force, uh, and that was a, a, a good and bad experience, but there was a culture of, 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 uh, of drinking um, in the unit I was in. And so I fell right into that. And so um, started, started drinking pretty regular, regularly, and at uh, 26 years old, my drinking and, uh, and cannabis use um, was really um, uh, a struggle for me. Well, it just became the boss, more or less, and so um, I had a friend who was watching um, from the sidelines as my family was uh, kind of disintegrating, and um, he invited me to his church just really found uh, kind of a paradise in that little church. We were very loved um, and cared for. And, um, and it was just the beginning of uh, a resurgence uh, in my faith and my wife's as well. And so it was a beautiful thing, but there was still the uh, habitualness of my drinking and it was problematic. And my pastor was aware of it. Um, and so uh, he walked with me through many relapses and um, there was a time when it, uh, it, it uh, diminished and um, through spiritual disciplines and just more than anything, I think just the love and acceptance from that multi-generational little church um, was uh, just an ingredient that um, I don't know that I'd ever experienced before. And so it was just a beautiful thing. Probably um, maybe two years into my sobriety there, I really sensed the call uh, in vocational to vocational ministry and this opportunity to interim at a church that needed a pastor came up and uh, they liked me and I liked them. And so I became the pastor. And so I was there for, um, for uh, 12 years. We kind of plateaued for a good while and then it was it was just clear to me, and the Lord was kind of directing me. I sensed to um, to move forward and to give the church an opportunity to 
to get to have a new voice. And so I had worked at residential treatment facilities as I went through college and and uh, Bible college. And and so I called and um, and found a job uh, actually uh, online um, and started working at a residential facility in Mishawaka immediately after we moved here. So. It was just a, a wonderful transition for me. I was working in direct care, working with uh, children and adolescents. And it wasn't long after I was there that they asked me if I'd like to consider being the chaplain there. The chaplain was leaving. And I have to tell you, it was just, it was just such a great fit. It, it just felt like coming home. All the great things I appreciated about the pastorate, I got to do as a chaplain. But I, I came into understanding of the whole clinical uh, environment, learned about mental illness, was invited to be part of clinical teams and staffings as we talked about young people, and um, was exposed to different treatments and modalities of treatment and um, different aspects of psychology. I would try to um, really demonstrate um, the things from scripture in chapel services or one-on-ones with the kids that would help them with the coping skills that they were being recommended to practice, whether it be for anger, whether they were suffering from different aspects of anxiety or depression. There's so much, you know, uh, to offer from scripture. Yeah, so I retired from that position and um, in 2020 uh, during uh, the height of COVID and it became a pretty soft landing, you know, for that situation. But Started volunteering at the Elkhart County Jail where I met you, Anthony, and and uh, and I just found that to be um, just a wonderful experience and uh, um, connected with so many of the inmates and heard about these opportunities to um, to work as a recovery coach. So that's that's kind of the avenue I've I've taken um, um, to to work as a, a as a recovery coach. Um, and, and help people who, who are struggling with uh, addiction. One of the things that just sticks out to me as you share your story is, so, so when you went into ministry or went to school, went to seminary, mm -hmm. uh, were, were you, thir like you were late 20s, early 30s? Yeah, so it was, uh, uh, I think I was 30 when I went back to, yeah college yeah I was a wow. horrible student um, <laughs> and so uh, I had no aspirations to enter back into education at all until I really sensed that you know God would have me do that and so yeah. well it's interesting you say that because more than um, I, I would say maybe more than a lot of people even people in ministry your story is sort of marked by you making these uh these pivots or these transitions that placed you in an environment where you had an opportunity to learn. Um, yep. I mean, even this certification to do the addictions coaching um, or recovery coach, you had to get these certifications and right. do this learning and you're retired. I mean, a lot of people like, you know, can't teach a older dog <laughs> new tricks or, um, or just like, you know, you, you've learned what you've learned in life and like you can coast like, uh, 
so you weren't a good student, but what, I guess maybe what changed uh, to where you, you've been a lifelong learner just by hearing the overview of your story. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that sticks out is you've been a lifelong learner. Why is that? So, yeah, I think that um, when you, when you discover purpose and, um, and a place where you can, where you feel yourself being utilized, especially if you sense that that's from, from God, um, there's really nothing like that. If, if you've, you, you find out and it's affirmed by other people who are around you that you have specific gifts that um, have, have helped them, um, that has really made the difference. It's just been the, the encouragement of the body, I think, um, as, as we seek to serve, serve God and you get feedback um, from individuals, um, even, even from the people who would be prone to be biased, of course, who are very encouraging, but from others who, who you've made um, impact in their life to help them, that just gives you more steam, you know, to continue to help and to learn. So that's where that comes from, I think. Yeah, that, that sense of calling, people often kind of misconstrue, like it has to be like a Damascus Road kind of thing, you know, Jesus right. appearing knocking you out the horse but i think I can, I can resonate with that too that a lot of the the sense of calling and you know purpose that i've had in my life has been kind of spurred on by uh affirmation from other people and right. them them seeing things in me that maybe i didn't necessarily even see in myself so yeah i i wonder about that sometimes when you read you know, First Corinthians thirteen or Romans twelve. When you see those those gifts, how how people know they have them when they hear them read. You know, and yeah. I I I just think that it's it's the body saying, "Oh yeah, man, when you when you taught on this, it just helped me so much." Or, you know, they've sensed mercy. You know, when they've been in a tight spot, and so I think that uh, that's exactly right. It's that's the way it's been for me. Yeah, exactly. Could you take us kind of through what the the day to day uh, life of uh, you call yourself a recovery coach, right. correct? Uh, can you tell me tell us what uh, kind of the day to day uh, duties are for that role? Yeah, sure. So recovery coaching is kind of a non clinical activities. We're not therapists, we're not sponsors, but we uh, shared lived experience um, with somebody, and so you know as as we engage people. Um, um, for in different contexts, in different situations, why we come into connection with, with people. Like in my situation, I work at a um, temporary housing facility uh, in South Bend. So it, it's filled with people who are unhoused and um, homeless. And so um, we work a lot with um, helping them um, become housed and so we fill out a lot of forms and so that's where the initial contact is in that situation we get to have conversations with them on a vulnerability scale on one of the forms and so we get to find out you know if there's drug use there if there's alcohol use and uh and um man it's just exciting to see and hear how transparent uh they are in in sharing that information and so 
we talk to them about opportunities that uh, we can we can avail ourselves to. I'm an employee of Oakland, and so we offer opportunities to um, receive um, to receive mental health um, help, and uh, also um, with uh, recovery coaching and. Um, to help them with addiction. So there's addictions uh, help that they can have as well um, through Oakland if they want to. Um, but also um, we're very familiar with um, rehabs, some in the area um, and some uh, in the Indiana area that we can, we can assist them in getting to. Um, and we can help them just kind of find out where they are so we can figure out what kind of path they want to take to recovery if they're thinking about recovery. Uh, in the process, as we're talking to people, we try to figure out what stage of change that they're in. And so we try to find out if they're good where they're at in their addiction and they don't have any problem with it, or if they're contemplating change and there's stuff going on, they know that it's having an effect on their health, their relationships. Maybe it's a vital piece of why they're homeless. And so they're thinking about it. And so then, um, that's when the dialogue can begin. And so we try to kind of uh, usher them into a place of, of action where they'll, they'll move on that. They'll pick a path, whether it's going to meetings, outpatient treatment, rehab, they, maybe they need detox. And so we assist them in, in making those movements um, toward recovery and then walking with them through recovery. One of the things I would, just love to hear you uh, speak to is I feel like sometimes it can be easy to judge uh, people who struggle with something we don't struggle with. Cause that's the, that's the thing is I've been in ministry long enough to find out, you know, to, to know, and just personally, most of us struggle with something. It's just sometimes easier uh, when, well, I don't struggle with that thing though. Right. Um, and addiction uh, can kind of be, especially if it's substance related, like in, in a lot of ways, we all are unaware of the little attachments and addictions we have, whether it's, um, you know, going to the refrigerator before bed uh, or watching Netflix in the evening. Like, it's just those are more acceptable attachments, if you will. But uh, when there's a substance, um, drug, alcohol, when, when those sorts of addictions are, are in the picture, it, it can kind of be easy to judge that and, and make that a target. Um, what have you learned in, in even your experience? Uh, you've walked this path. What have you learned about addiction and people's stories that has allowed for compassion to replace condemnation? Um, I, I think that um, one of the most pivotal things um, for me in the, in this, in the clinical environment that I was in is we kind of headed into this whole um, trauma informed care um, practice uh, where I work. And uh, there was a shift in how we, how we um, accepted people or looked at people who came to us for services. Um, and it was instead of what's wrong with you, you know, so we could go right at the problem, diagnose the problem, go at it, fix it. You know, we ask um, what's happened to you. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it truly is where 
our, our biography uh, can turn into our um, biology. And what I mean by that is that um, things happen in our lives that literally begin to uh, change us um, yeah. uh, emotionally and, and, and physically, um, where these things that happen to us in childhood can uh, flesh themselves out later in life with uh, negative health outcomes. And so that, that thing has really uh, permeated how I, how I see people, um, how I um, work with people, and so uh, I've seen people um, who have had tough, tough childhoods and you can just kind of watch it and see where, where things, um, things are gonna be difficult for that person. Um, as you watch their parents, as you see the kind of um, you know, friends the kids pick along the way, um, the kind of things that you know, they, uh, they find themselves gravitating towards, you can just kind of, you can just kind of see it taking place. And then, and so there's some expectations that come to fruition, but then, uh, and a lot of that, you know, uh, is addiction kind of plays into that as well uh, for different reasons when a, a kid is exposed to trauma. But then, then there's um, kids that come from just amazing homes um, and um, they're, they're given this beautiful, you know, um, scaffolding and structure and love. And still um, there's, there's times when um, those kids fall into uh, addiction as well. And so um, it, it, just, it just cuts through all strata of life and addiction is no respecter. Of, of persons. And so I just um, am not surprised any longer uh, uh, when I find, you know, people from different ages and stages and economic, you know, strata that um, people still um, become addicted and need help and not uh, judgment, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I really like what you said. Our biography can sometimes become our biology. Um, that's really, really helpful. I, there's a, got to sneak in a John Mark Comer quote. Okay. Uh, here, we every episode, in, at least one. every episode in his newer, newest book, live no lies. He says, uh, most addictions and most any form of self-destructive behavior that is impervious to our attempts to change are rooted in trauma. Wickedness is tied to woundedness. We mm. all need healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that to be true, like in my own life and in ministry. Um, but Greg, I think to play devil's advocate, some people say, well, we all have tough stuff and, you know, I've had a rough story, but I'm, you know, not uh, an alcoholic. Uh, so, um, that's just a, a way for them to play the victim card and, um, and, and what, whatever other, I don't know, arguments or case I can make to still sort of stand in my place of, of self-righteous judgment. Like, um, could you share a little bit, maybe just personally, how, how, how does acknowledging the trauma uh, coexist with the personal responsibility the person has? Does that make sense? Like, how, yeah. like 
yeah, they have personal responsibility, but, but being aware of their story and their trauma, it helps uh, cultivate compassion in you. And, and it also is part of the, my, my understanding is it's part of the journey to wholeness. Can you kind of unpack that a little? Yeah. And I, I just think it's vital, you know, for people of faith to, to kind of dig deep on this and, 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 and do our best to understand this. So, be, so we'll be prepared for those people who come into our midst, you know, who enter into our places of worship, that, that we will recognize, you know, those, those symptoms and um, that there'll be some modicum of, of um, understanding. We certainly don't have to accept, you know, the the behavior that are resulting from that that's where we're there to to nurture and love them into to healthy change right but to understand uh, is so important and the um the stuff that i i was given opportunity to learn about trauma came from um, dr anda robert anda and vincent folletti um, who did the ace study and they um, had this hypothesis that this that these experiences that children can have before the age of 18 can um, do dramatic things uh, to to their to their brains, and um, and that's caused by um, the fight and flight system being put into uh, high gear during times of. Um, stress um, where uh, these traumatic um, events may be taking place under a roof. And what I mean by that, at the hands of, of caretakers. And so um, they compared notes and after they met and they had experienced um, different things um, to indicate that uh, these childhoods that uh, of their patients were affecting later health outcomes. And so uh, they created a survey with 10 questions on it, and they gave it to 17,000 people, or yeah, it was a little more than that. And they are part of a big health consortium in uh, San Diego and, uh, called Kaiser Permanente. And so they asked the people that they gave the survey to, can we um, give you this survey? And can we watch your prescription drug use? And can we watch your hospital visits and doctor's you know, appointments and all that. And they said, sure. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They said, yeah, you bet, watch, watch away. And so they gave them the, uh, the survey and it had 10 questions um, on it related to the treatment um, that people most specifically mentioned as part of the difficulties they had as children. That was part of the getting ready uh, part of this, the adverse childhood experience study. And so there were three questions about abuse. There were um, a couple of questions about neglect. Um, and then five questions had to do with other members of the family. Um, so, you know, whether a person had been incarcerated in a family, whether there was mental illness that was suffered by a person in the family and um, perhaps uh, attempts at suicide um, whether there were uh, people in the 
in a caretaker who was addicted to alcohol or substance streets they call them street drugs in this in the survey um, whether there was divorce or abandonment or deportment and so all of these questions um, counted as one and then um, as when um, uh, counted when 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 added up, that was your ACE score. And so uh, out of 17,000, um, you know, there were a third of the people had zero adverse uh, experiences. Now this is San Diego, kinda, kind of on the upper end of, uh, of, of uh, economic um, um, well-being. And then um, um, two thirds had one or more. And then a whopping, you know, third had four or more, and so that's when you can see this tilting, um, where things really begin to happen that were significantly uh, different. And they showed, and so after the study, and they collected all this data, you could see where um, people with more ACEs had more negative health outcomes. Um, so the higher the ACEs. Um, the worse off their health was in latter years. And, uh, and it was dramatic. And I think it was um, the, the, you know, as he described, as Dr. Andrew described what takes place in the brain uh, during these traumatic events. And he, they showed um, uh, MRI slides of brains and a developmental uh, disruption that takes place. And when these things happen to children, that was stunning. But I think the graphs that they showed repeatedly had this stair step. Like the more gas you put in the car, the further you go. It was like the more aces you have, the sicker you have potential of becoming. Uh, and I wanna just um, make this clear that this was a survey and not a diagnostic assessment. That's very, very important because just because you have you know, six or seven ACEs does not mean, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna be susceptible to cancer tomorrow. But it did show a pattern in large groups of people, right? That this was something that was, that was happening. After they finished uh, sharing that information, when I was at the Croc Center, I stayed in my chair for about 20 minutes after everybody left because I have a pretty I have a relatively high A score. And, and, I, and I was just seeing people from my congregation in Los Angeles, all these faces, and remember, remembering all the trauma that they had shared with me and all the problems that they had suffered at very early ages. I had so many people in my church who had addiction problems and it all began to really, kind of makes sense, you know? And so that was a very moving time for me to hear what trauma does when the limbic system is hijacked and when we suffer from, you know, large amounts of adrenaline and cortisol that's just constantly in our systems because we're on high rev all the time looking for something to happen, just waiting unconsciously, unconsciously, for the next shoe to drop, that there's gonna be something around the corner that I'm gonna to have to save my life, right? So uh, 
we're designed that way so that we might stay alive. But those kinds of fight and flight systems that we are enabled with, that we are designed with, are, are only supposed to be firing for about 20 minutes. By that time, we can get out of a situation or we can fight our way out of a situation, right? But if we're constantly being bombarded with scary situations in the home, we are just um, compelled to stay hyper vigilant. And that's the thing that changes brain chemistry. And by the time we're old enough to drink, or the time we're old enough to maybe we're offered a substance that might make us feel a little different, uh, we're ready. And so that, that was their hypothesis, that the risky behavior begins after the, the social and the developmental cognitive ability is affected by all this cortisol and adrenaline and brain change. And so risky behaviors start early smoking, all kinds of social problems. And so the risky behavior just amps up the, uh, the potential for disease. That makes sense? It just, that's, yeah. yeah it's, that's it's, absolutely it's, fascinating. I, yeah, that's, thank you for sharing that. That's, um, that's really interesting. And I mean, I can, I could, I, I was a youth pastor for a number of years and I, I saw students that I could, I was thinking like, what would their A score be? Yeah. <laughs> it would be, yeah. It would be sky high. And you just saw the way that they progressed through their, you know, teenage years. And they were in a lot of ways set up to fail um, because of what they went through at home. Yes. And that just yeah. adds another, another layer of complexity to addiction or what could be, you know, what could turn into addiction in their later years. So, right. um, yeah. so we're talking about a lot of like kind of scientific concepts here. And sometimes Christians are kind of wary of like, you know, secular psychology, mm-hmm. you know, if you have depression, you treat it with a pill, you don't treat it with prayer, then you don't have enough faith, that kind of thing. Um, but I think I've found, and it sounds like we all kind of agree that a lot of the time, you know, science reinforces theology, right? We, we, especially when it comes to like studies on the human condition, the human psyche, mm-hmm. human brain, uh, scientists are finding out things that Christians have known all along. Like, yeah, yeah. God exactly. God designed us that way. That's in the Bible. Um, so, uh, there's kind of a two prong question. Um, how have you found that, you know, delving into these scientific concepts, how have you found that it, it enhances your understanding of like how God created us? Um, and also, uh, how can we, um, how does your theology, your faith kind of fill in the gaps that, you know, science kind of leaves behind? Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, we got Christians believing that a person's struggles are primarily spiritual and that God alone can heal. And on the other hand, you have you know, secular psychologists claiming that these struggles are biological and developmental disruptions and that we can, you know, be about fixing ourselves. So despite these kind of polarizations, we want to, I don't know, make sure that uh, 
the psychology and, and biblical counseling don't have to be at war. And so uh, I think that psychology is, is not um, mono, monolithic in that they have so many approaches and there's so many modalities of treatment and, and different, ki different kinds of, of um, methods that, um, you know, counselors and therapists find themselves cherry picking over the different methods that may fit, you know, the situation they're in with a client. And so they, they kind of practice eclectically those, those things. It's not Freudian or Jungian only, but um, they know a lot of theories. And so if a person is grieving, they may take them into, uh, you know, um, existential theory and, and help them to create narrative and meaning around the loss. Uh, and then if there's behavior issues, they might take them into cognitive behavioral therapy you know, theory. And so there's all kinds of things that, that they do. Um, but Christian counselors um, will uh, a lot of times adopt certain psychological theories, um, but, but they don't embrace any underlying philosophies that, that deny God or biblical truths. Um, so in essence, psychology, if, if we're aware of some of those methods, and we see that it doesn't contradict scripture and it, we use it as a tool. Um, we can see different skills that people can develop that have been best practices out of theory, you know, uh, psych psychological theory that, that help people um, and see that, you know, those, those, those skills that they have are, you know, uh, it's, it's not a God thing, it's a thing thing. It's, it's all moral, it's gonna help you, you know? So um, you just kind of take the theological piece out of it and see the human uh, aspect uh, of it. Um, but during, you know, those times that we spend with people, you know, talking about, you know, what's going on in their life, if you do biblical counseling, if, if you are doing pastoral counseling, um, or even if you're a Christian therapist, that um, you know aren't really advised to enter into conversations with their own theological perspective. As people are searching for reason and meaning and creating narrative, you can't help but begin the, the searching process. Um, uh, and so there's many times in the counseling room, um, even when it's not a pastoral counseling room, that people are talking about you know, a search for meaning and consequently a search for God. And so that's a wonderful thing because it's in those, 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 those musings and those thinkings that God is sought and oftentimes he is found when people are genuinely seeking. And so we can lend ourselves to that. So, um, you know, there's just discernment that comes along with some of the information you hear, you know, um, even in best practices, you, you know that there's a, there's a, a, a spin on it and some biases connected to it, that there's nothing, you know, completely devoid of somebody's strong opinion, you know, somewhere. And so you just have to be aware of, of what that, what that is. I, I agree. Definitely. Um, we don't have to shy away from these, you know, quote unquote, secular methods. 
because mm-hmm. uh, God created us with the ability to to think and to reason and to innovate. And so in an indirect way, maybe not even indirect way, like those discoveries and innovations and treatments and things that are, you know, that don't deny the existence of God. Uh, those are, you know, things that God himself created because he created right. us to create them. Uh, what are some things you wished other Christians knew about addiction? And what are some myths people commonly believe about those who struggle? Like, so what, what are some things you, you wish people knew or some myths you've encountered? Um, if, if you were to sort of have a, a few quick tips. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. I wish people knew how isolation drives addiction. It's just the enemy, you know, and it's, and it's what, um, like I said, it, it seems to, to really drive um, addiction. During uh, COVID, man alive, overdoses were just through the roof. And I, and I put it really in the, in that place uh, of isolation that that caused much of that. Um, There's a paralysis that takes place when a person's in uh, coming into recovery um, that I wish people knew about. You realize that there are people, places, and things that you have to stay away from and life becomes kind of boring. Um, And so a lot of times that's part of the message I'll I'll share with (laughs) people in recovery is, is there's this 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 boredom that takes place because the chaos and the drama that the addiction has caused will will subside and so there's this this quietness that that occurs sometimes that they'll fill up consciously or subconsciously though they'll, they'll create drama um i know i did it i was living with my emotions um that had been uh, dulled and um um, were kind of put to sleep in the addiction. And so I was feeling my emotions again and learning how to communicate with people, uh, how to have conversations, how to argue. Um, and those things ha- is almost like I had to learn to walk again. And so I appreciated those people who, who just spent time with me, even if they didn't get addiction. They just, and, and these were members of that little church I was describing. They would just they would just call me and check in and we'd have conversations. And for the longest time, I just, I couldn't stand, I couldn't stand gatherings. They made me so uncomfortable and I felt so awkward, but I knew after a while that I was, I was healing as a result of it, that that reconnection with people um, was so helpful and formidable uh, for me during that time in my life um, of just feeling loved and the abatement of shame was it was just it was just diminishing because people knew and I didn't have to feel afraid or ashamed anymore it was like uh, they were walking with me you know so I think that um, the local church can really become you know this haven uh, for people in recovery if we know a little bit about it and if we can you know accept some of their past behaviors when they walked in addiction yeah that's I so good. think that's so important um 
I've, I've met with addicts before who there was one guy, he said, he's always going to stick with me. What he said, he said, uh, you know, I've been, I've been preached at all my life, you know, whether from my parents or from my parole officer, or from judges, pastors. Um, and sometimes all I want is someone to just listen to me. Um, yeah. And I, man, it's, it's more easier said than done in a lot of cases, but uh, that's, I think that's what the church can be in, in a lot of ways. So I, I think anyone could, could look into your, you know, the family, the relationships, and, and I think most people might have experience with a loved one who uh, struggles with addiction. So what advice or encouragement would you give uh, to someone who has a loved one who is struggling with addiction? Oh, so um, I guess when um, I, I consider that question, I always go to the parent of an adolescent first. Um, it seems like I review that in my own life uh, so many times, uh, how I parented. And I parented uh, much like I was, you know, parented. And so um, that, was, that was through uh, just a lot of, you know, a lot of, not warm, but warn. I was warning all the time. <laughs> I was warning all the time. And I was so suspicious. And um, when a child or ad what well, a adolescent um, gets into uh, substance use, there's just this impulse to batten down the hatches and um, really um, take charge. And that's, that's, um, that's very, very difficult for the young person. And if he's got a group of friends that become threatening to the parents and that, that they, there's gonna be this dismembering of that where that's almost like a milestone and friends are so helpful in their growth and it's a big deal to finally connect and not feel like an outsider. And so, that's, that's, that's a hard time for a kid. And so um, um, working with that to maintain our composure somehow and have warm, engaging conversations about substances where, where the, the kid is listened to and he's not frightened of you and you can have those conversations. And so as, as, those, as those can um, transpire in your life and you train yourself as a parent to, to do that, I think I've seen just amazing um, outcomes uh, from that. The other thing I wanna tell parents is uh, you can't do this alone. You, you've gotta have support. You, you've gotta have support, whether it comes from um, the body that you're connected to, the church you're connected to, or you, you begin to fashion yourself a network of people who have a piece of the map and they've experienced it. Um, and so you find groups or you find, you know, people uh, through the grapevine that, you know, you know, had, have traveled this path and you connect with them. Um, so that's important. If parenting on its own with no addiction or no big issues, like it's just hard. So I would advise parents to cluster often to talk about, you know, parenting, but especially if there's issues that are dangerous, like, like addiction and that kind of thing. Greg, thank you for sharing. 
um, all of this is super helpful. I'm gonna, something that crossed my mind well, as you were sharing about the adverse childhood experience okay. um, was we are able to see a child going through something uh, hard okay. or if we were to know about it, abuse uh -huh. uh, or um, if they had lost someone in their family or if they went through a divorce, their parents went through a divorce and they were affected by that. And we would be moved to compassion for the child. Um, but we fail to realize that that has impacted their brains such that their, their brains are almost um, prepared to just receive uh, an, an, an addictive substance. They're, they're prepared mm -hmm. to be predisposed to cope with mm -hmm. something that can be addictive. Um, and then when they are an addict, especially if they're an adult, we can view them through a lens of judgment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I hear you saying is, um, or just that I see or, or want to see, is to be able to see the wounded child behind the addict or um, to, to be able to see uh, them through a lens of needing healing and wholeness uh, through Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and, and allowing the same compassion I would have for a child to be able to have that compassion for uh, an adult addict. Um, even if they've made some rough mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. to realize that there's, there's possibly a, a very deeply wounded child uh, there, you know? Yeah. I, I think that, um, I think that that's a beautiful uh, lens to see them through. Uh, it's when you're dealing with an adult um, and you look back at their, their childhoods and, and consider what they've been through. Um, and, and a child uh, as well. And, they're, and they're, <laughs> they're steady making mistakes and you can see things coming. And what I shared with you and what I, I even heard at the ACE conference that I attended when that chief scientist was sharing it was a lot of very damnable information that just really diminishes hope. But he didn't leave without giving us the good stuff. And he talked about, you know, um, plasticity of the brain. And when we reinstitute things that will be, will be almost remedial, that children missed along the way becomes part of the therapy that they're that they're given and these things don't have to be given by a therapist guys there are friends be long time before there were therapists right there is the body of christ a long time <laughs> before we had psychology yeah. and we were applying love in in ways that we could see had a tremendous effect and you'll always hear uh and even oprah shares because she became you know, familiar with uh, the ACE study that there's, if there's one caring, competent adult in a person's life who, who gives guidance and help and mentorship, that seems to be the denominator that, that really makes a difference, even for kids who have suffered tremendous amounts of childhood stressors and trauma. Um, it seems to be one of those things on a 
fulcrum can really change the outcome of what those ACEs do. Because we not only looked at the ones who were affected by ACEs, we want to look at the third who had zero ACEs and what they had in their life. And we want to look at people who are resilient, who can withstand, um, you know, the, the, uh, the stressors of life. Why do some people do so well, you know, under difficult circumstances and can just track on? And some people, you know, if they get a bad phone call or they hear a negative word or somebody says something, they just fall to pieces. And so we call that resilience. So we find out what the pieces were. And I can share those three components real quick with what um, we've tried to you know, share with people to put in place when kids are kids, um, but also reinstitute in a person's life who's missed out. And so we have capabilities. And so the capabilities are helping a person be emotionally regulated and have a good uh, outlook of life, to have an attitude of can do, right? You have to develop that, you know? And that can be quenched pretty early on, but we, we look for it and we try to build on it to help a person become, you know, uh, emotionally regulated and can regulate himself and the uh, self-efficacy. And then the other thing is attachment and belonging. And that can happen in the church. That can happen in families when they feel it. Uh, they're not neglected, they're listened to. We have conversations with people so that attachment and belonging is so is so important. And the next thing, this is where the, the church really comes into play, is, the, is having a sense of community, culture, and spirituality. So th those three components um, are so important in a person's life to build scaffolding for resilience. And that can happen even in the lives of people who have experienced tremendous trauma, okay? And so that can happen during recovery and um, there's hope. What was that uh, community culture and spirit? What was that spiritual? Spirituality. So that, oh, just yeah. Spirituality. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's where people um, have develop a sense of uh, community values, right? And so there's the, in that community of values, people um, aren't necessarily saying, you just be you, you just be, you, <laughs> you know, that's saying be you and you want to be, you know, faithful to, to be yourself and that kind of thing. But what community says is be us. Mm. That's kind of what it is. We have this community set of values that we, we stand behind and will help us through life. You know, I know it sounds a little bit cultic. But that's that's kind of where what the value of community is is there's this there's this these um, these practices that we've put in place in life that have been proven you know to be to be helpful and and to help us get along with each other and to help us love each other okay so that's that's what I mean by that and so yeah, spiritually uh, as well that's great. Um, those are really helpful. One of the things I love about those, that list uh, is uh, the 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 church. If we would do it well with humility, grace, compassion, and love, can help with these uh, capabilities and uh, through edification um, that can do attitude and the, the attachment and belonging and the community culture spirituality. Like uh, if there's healthy, loving, gracious community, 
Um, and it helps combat the, one of the biggest things you said earlier was isolation. Yes. Um, people being able to be unashamed and in relationship with other people who they know love them, um, even if they mess up, uh, it's just huge. Um, yeah. Thank you, uh, Greg. We, uh, we're going to have to uh, wrap up here, but um, are there any, uh, real quick, are there any resources like just these are almost must have or, or you, you feel um, this would be really helpful for people to know um, when we talk about this subject of addiction? Sure. Um, there's a couple of books you know, about the ACE study. One is called The Deepest Well, uh, and it's by um, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Uh, it's about this study and how she came to know it. Um, she is now the Surgeon General of California. She, they have their own Surgeon General. And so, uh, and it's because primarily because of her attention to this, this health study and what she's done to improve it there in that state. Also, there's one, um, <laughs> if you're interested that, that it poses that question I gave you, uh, what happened to you? It's by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And so she says that as a journalist, it's become the most important topic that she's ever encountered in her life. So I thought that was a big deal. And then um, let's see, there's a movie on uh, Prime um, where they have uh, put together the uh, principles of of being trauma-informed in a school that was about ready to close and it's called Paper Tigers. And so uh, you'll see those principles that a principal got a hold of because he went to an ACE conference and how it worked for him and what it did to uh, his school. So it's an amazing story. So I think that's about, that's about it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, thank you. This uh, was fun. Thanks, man. Really, uh, really appreciate that and those resources, especially the Prime. That's uh, some people who maybe don't like to read. Like that'd be a great, yeah, uh, a, a great resource to look into. I'll throw one in real quick that I found helpful. Um, Addiction and Grace by Gerald May um, was a helpful read for me, but it is. Uh, it has some clinical, some challenging chapters, I guess, to wrap your mind around when it talks about, but he has a Christian perspective too. So it brings sort of the, the theology and the neurobiology and psychology together. And I thought it was a really helpful read, but yes. well, we have to wrap up. Um, thanks for uh, listening. Uh, if you uh, found this helpful or you know someone who would benefit from listening, I encourage you to like, share, rate us on iTunes, all of those things help increase our listener base. And um, until next time, this is Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and Matt Tracy. Matt Tracy, <laughs> soon, soon to be Dr. Matt yes. Tracy. Soon to be, yeah, give me about five to six years and then we'll talk. Uh, you know, I'm this relative. Well, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.